It's great to be in here and in with as many as we're allowed to have at this point in time. And what was a real blessing yesterday is um, we had we've been having two Christmas parties just because of the restrictions on numbers and things like that. Because throughout the normal year, uh, twice a month, we would have a bring and share lunch after church, which we haven't been able to do since about March. Um, but because the Christmas parties were happening in homes, they fell under the directions for homes. So it was the first time that we'd actually been able to hang out together and share a meal together in a large number. So that was, that was good. I'm sure come announcements, they'll be speaking about the one that's also on next Saturday as well. We come to the end of our series in 1 Samuel because chapters 30 and 31 are the final two chapters of 1 Samuel and we will begin our Christmas series of A Better Christmas uh, starting next week. So let's come before the Lord in prayer uh, that he might speak to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have called us to yourself Every single one of us know that we haven't honoured you in a way which you are worthy of being honoured. In fact, we, if we take an honest assessment of ourselves, we, we recognise that we deserve punishment, we deserve death. We thank you for the gracious provision of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have provided our way of salvation and, Lord, that you have given us your word that we might know you, that we might hear from you and that we might be guided by your spirit, that we might grow more and more into the image of your son. And we pray that you'd be pleased to do that through our time together, looking at your word now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If it was any other time of year, I probably wouldn't have given the sermon this title, We Three Kings, because you could be mistaken and thinking, hang on, are we going back to that Christmas series you did a couple of years ago, Things We Sing at Christmas? But as we look at these last two chapters of 1 Samuel, we see two parallel accounts of the first two kings of Israel, of Saul and of David. Along the process, we'll see there are a number of things that are similar about the two of them, but there are also some very distinct things that separate them in a very serious way. But what causes in both of them is that We see their shortcomings. We long for a better king. So these three kings of the sermon title are the Lord's anointed in Saul, David, and ultimately in the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Last week as Samuel preached through chapters 27 to 29, we saw that David had decided that it was in his best interest to find protection and safety amongst the Philistines. And there he was kind of serving King Achish, carrying out missions, raids against their enemies, although David was deliberately kind of vague and kind of misleading in the details in which he was giving. Probably added to the fact of why he made sure that he killed everyone in all these raids so that there was no survivors to report exactly where these raids took place. But I think the most notable thing in those three chapters, David makes no reference or no seeking of the Lord at any stage in those three chapters. The only people who make any mention of the Lord in those three chapters are Saul and the 
Philistine king Achish. Now, unfortunately, it wasn't the first time that David has relied upon his own wisdom and skill. If you go back to chapter 21, where he's travelling through the land and he comes to the priests at Nob Ahimelech and says, I'm on a special mission from the king. Give us what you've got. Now, misleading him to think that Saul has sent him on a mission. And the end result of that was that Saul demanded the death of all of the priests of Nob, but eventually that led to the entire destruction of all of the people who lived there. Today, as we look at these final two chapters, chapter 30 and 31, we see two parallel events. They actually seem to be occurring side by side at the same time. Because both the time and distance from Aphek for David to head down to, to Ziklag, as well as the Philistines to head towards battle toward Israel, we're talking about a distance of roughly around 100 kilometres and a couple of days' journey. So both of these chapters seem to run parallel as we see these two kings, David and Saul, in very different contexts. By God's providence, David had been sent away by the Philistines not to participate in that battle. That battle which with the Lord had spoken through the spirit of Samuel to, to Saul to say that Israel was going to lose. They were going to be defeated in that battle. So we see a contrast between these two kings. In chapter 30, we see the king who rescues all. Chapter 31, we see a gospel proclaimed throughout the nation. And we'll wrap it up as we talk about proclaiming the rescuing king to all nations. While David was with the Philistines, every impression was he was really successful in all that he did. You'd think this was a really good time for David. But all indications, especially the fact that David makes no reference to the Lord during those three chapters, is David's operating, trusting in his own skill and wisdom and abilities. Now, as they returned to Ziklag, I've got no doubt that both David and all of the men with David were starting to question the wisdom of, was going amongst the Philistines actually a good idea? Because as they returned to Ziklag, they find Ziklag had been burned to the ground and every single one of the people, the men, the women, the children, have been taken captive Now you might think, well that's far more humanitarian than David. He just wiped everybody out when he went on his raids. But it wasn't so much that they were being nice. I think, these are a resource. We can sell these people as slaves. And there's no more profound and concise summary of the situation than we find in verse 6. David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul. Each for his sons and his daughters and hopefully also their wives. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. There's no words wasted there. You know exactly what David's feeling, you know exactly what the people are feeling, and you know exactly what David is going to do in response. Now this is a big moment for David. David used to have... 600 loyal men who were behind him all of the way. We saw how they first gathered to him back in chapter 22. It says, Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul 
gathered to him and he became commander over them and there were with him about 400 men and later on a couple of hundred got added to that. So the people that gathered to him were a people who were bitter in soul because of what Saul was doing. And now as they return with their leader who they thought was their rescuer from the situation, they are now bitter in soul because of decisions and actions that David has made. And now they want to stone him. Now this wasn't the best day that David ever had. Uh, You hear so many people talking about, oh, 2020, it's a year you never want to have ever again. David had lots of years that were way worse than 2020 over and over and over again. He's stressed. His most loyal followers want to stone him. What does he do? Does he rely on his great skill, strength, wisdom again? Maybe go on some raids, win back their loyalty another time? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. If it was true that David had kind of given a back shelf to the Lord in the previous chapters, at this point in time, David strengthened himself in the Lord. He didn't lean on his skill, his wisdom, his understanding, his strength and his might. He was strengthened in the Lord because he is our unshakable, undiminishable strength. It's not just in these deep moments of despair. We need to be strengthened in the Lord every moment, every day. As Paul prayed for the Colossians, the way in which he prayed for them, you see in the first chapter, asking that they would be filled with all knowledge in his will and all spiritual understanding and wisdom, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance with patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father. We need daily strengthening of the Lord. Not just during our difficult times, yes, in our difficult times, on the best day you've ever had, when you think everything is going as good as it could possibly go, we need to be strengthened in the Lord. And the sooner we look to him, rather than looking to ourselves and our abilities, the sooner we will be strengthened, we will grow in him. Now, as David sought the Lord, he calls upon Abiathar to bring the ephod. Now, Abiathar was the one and only priest who escaped when Saul said all the priests of Nob needed to be slaughtered. He was the son of Ahimelech. And as he brings the ephod, which we've seen previously in 1 Samuel, it was a means, even though the Bible never talks about how it was used, particularly in 1 Samuel, by which they discerned the will of God regarding a situation. Now, sometimes people say within the the priestly ephod, there was like the Urim and Thummim, these these stones that they would use for discerning God's will, but it doesn't actually say what method they use, so we don't need to speculate that. But the question that David wants answered is, should I pursue whoever has done this? Should I go after whoever has burned Ziklag to the ground and taken all the people from this area? And much like we saw back in chapter 23, 
that we see in the response of God, both a command, what he's to do, but that is accompanied by a promise to have a surety that he can carry out the command which God had given. Back in chapter 23, the command was, go to Keilah. And the promise was, I will give the Philistines into your hand. Whereas here in chapter 30, verse 8, the command was, pursue them. And the promise was, you will surely overtake them and you will surely rescue. So based on the command and the promise, David takes 400 men. There's 200 who stay behind, who are too tired, but they've done 100 Ks in a couple of days across quite trying things, so it's quite okay. And they go out in search of who this could be. Now realise, David hasn't just read 1 Samuel chapter 30. He doesn't know that it's the Amalekites. He can probably have a short list of places that he's recently raided himself, but he doesn't know exactly who he's going out to find. Along the way, he encounters an Egyptian who is a slave to an Amalekite who's been abandoned because he was unwell. So they just thought, you're a bit of a liability, leave him behind. David and his men provided him with food. He was strengthened and he bore testimony that it was indeed the Amalekites who had attacked Ziklag, burned it to the ground and taken all of the people. Now clearly David wants to know where they are. He's been given the command by God to pursue them that he will definitely rescue and overtake them. And the Egyptian agrees on two conditions. You don't kill me and you don't hand me over to my master. David obviously agrees to that deal and David and his posse arrive on the place where it's party time. They're singing, they're dancing, they're eating, they're celebrating all the spoil that they have gained. Clearly not expecting anyone to arrive on the scene. True to God's word, David was victorious And as we read in verses 18 and 19, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons, daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. There's some repetition there. Nothing went missing. He brought back everything where it says he recovered, literally, he rescued all, not a single thing lost. Now, this is more than, good job, David, you little lucky-ducky, you didn't lose anything. This is a question of what does David teach us about Christ? How does David, as the foreshadow to Jesus, point us to Jesus? The same Jesus, the, the true and perfect son of David, And John chapter 10 says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Some seven chapters later, Jesus says, I have lost none of all that you have given me as he's praying to the Father. Jesus is the final David, the final and perfect Messiah loses none of those who come to him. Isn't that a comfort? Isn't that a comfort to the soul to know that there is absolutely no person, no thing, 
Nothing that you could ever do that could make you lost, that could take you away from your relationship with Jesus Christ. Not only did David not lose anything, he was a king who gave. Remember back in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel when the, the people are asking Samuel for a king and he says, I'll give you a king, but this is what the king will do. He will take. If David was a king who gives. He gave to all of his 600 men, not just the 400, even though they were a bit upset about the other 200 getting some. They thought they were lazy, staying behind with the bags. But he gave to all of the 600. They thought their role was just as important. And also gave some of his own personal spoil to the elders of Judah. Now it's fitting for the one who foreshadows Jesus to be a king who gives. Jesus is the one who gives life and gives life abundantly. Who gives gifts, who loves to give gifts to his children. He's the perfect and final king who loses none and gives abundantly. But before we speak of his good news proclaimed to all nations, there is another good news. Now, Sometimes, you know, when you're talking about someone's last days, you like to build up the suspense. How's it all going to work out for Saul? But the narrator's kind of spoiled it a little bit because back in chapter 28, there's no secrets. It's all out on the table. As he sought a medium and was somehow able to raise the spirit of Samuel, what Samuel said to Saul was this, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me, that is, in the grave. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So it's been clearly foretold. When you go into this battle against the Philistines, the Israelites are going to lose and you and your sons are going to die. Now, there's been previous occasions when David's had opportunity to kill, to kill Saul. But on both occasions, he refused. He says, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. If God has put him in this position, it is up to God to take him out of it if he wants to. Back in chapter 26, David said either the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will die in battle. But in the end, it was none of those things that David listed that brought Saul's life to its final end. As they go out into battle, the Israelites are overtaken by the Philistines. Jonathan and two other of Saul's sons are killed. And as Israel retreats up Mount Gilboa, no longer can they chase with the chariots. That's when it's time the archers come out, start taking their shots. And Saul and his armour bearer are amongst those who are wounded by the archers. He's not killed at this point in time, but Saul's at a point where he's like, I'm done. I can't fight on. They're going to come and get me. He's like, I was the king that God says would deliver the people from the Philistines. I can't be killed by them. What a disgrace that would be. So he turns to his armour bearer and says, pull out your sword. Take my life, let these, lest these filthy Philistines take my life away from me. 
But the armor bearer was much like David. He's like, I can't. I can't do that. And in a moment of desperation, Saul takes his own life by falling on his own sword. And the armor bearer, overcome by the situation, does exactly the same thing. It's an unexpected ending. Like uh, that, that detail certainly wasn't given in what Samuel said back in chapter 28. And it almost, you might be a little bit uncomfortable to think, Israel's first king, Saul, the Lord's anointed, died via suicide. He killed himself. Now, time-wise, it would be tempting to kind of just keep going on, but I realise it's a big issue. So um, a couple of brief points I think are important to say. There are six suicides in the Bible. Saul, his armour-bearer, Abimelech, Judas, Ahithophel, and Zimri. All six of those men were quite troubled at the time. And on all six of those guys, the event is described, but there's no commentary surrounding it. There is no comment made or evaluating the actions in which they took. The Bible is actually quite silent on the matter. It's very open and clear about the matter, about you should not take life, so it falls under that category. But often we hear people go beyond what is actually written. I've heard people say, well, that person committed suicide. Clearly they were never a Christian. I don't see that written anywhere in the scriptures. Or I've heard some people say, suicide, that's the unforgivable sin. Well, the Bible does speak of an unforgivable sin. Jesus speaks of an unforgivable sin. But it's not suicide. I think if a Christian was in that situation... Potentially, it would be like a 1 Corinthians 3.15. Saved, but as one through fire. I know it's a big topic and I've only briefly touched on it, but I just wanted to raise those couple of points. Feel free to have a chat later if you'd like to about any of those things. Because it's not the key point of the passage. But as was normal with the customs of the time, the army would come and they would return to the battle scene. They'd make sure everyone was dead. They would take their armour and clean up from all of the things that are available there to be taken. As they come, they find Saul, they chop off his head, much like David had done with Goliath, not that long back, back in history. And they take Saul and they strip him of his armour. And there are three significant things they did. Firstly, they hung Saul's armour in the temple of the Ashtaroth who was their their war god, as a way of saying, our God defeated this king's God. Our God is the greatest. Much like what happened back in chapters 4 and 5 when they took the ark of God and then they put it in Dagon's temple, but poor old Dagon kept falling over and and his head falls off. They hung Saul's body out in public. They wanted to make a mockery of him. Say, look at this guy who made all these claims, who was supposed to save Israel from the Philistines. Here he is, hanging and rotting without his head. But the third thing, an interesting thing they did, is they sent out heralds or messengers to proclaim good news or to proclaim a gospel. A gospel that 
this king had died. That they determined to be such good news that this king had died that the whole nation needed to hear about it. That's worth pondering, isn't it? That the Philistines believed that the death of this king was good news. It was a gospel to be proclaimed throughout the whole nation. Why? Because he represented the Philistines' number one enemy. For them, they think, if he is gone, we are free. Our gods have defeated yours. But it was a very short-lived celebration. Israel would appoint another king in David who would come and fight against the Philistines again. It was a very temporary good news to proclaim. It's much like every other claim you hear today when someone says, God is dead. Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Your Bible's just all a fairy tale. All of those are just effectively different versions of the Philistine gospel. Something which people believe, they feel a sense of relief and think, I've got nothing to worry about. Only to find in the scheme of eternity that belief comes to nothing. But there was a king whose death was worth proclaiming. And proclaiming to all nations... Both Saul and David are described as the Lord's anointed, that is, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. Each had their own share of success and failings, often placed in parallel with the degree to which they were faithful and obedient to the Lord their God, because that was the nature of what a king would do, that they would honour and they would serve God, not be a king in and of their own right. But they always fell short of the hopes of the people. Even at their best of times, they were never what the people were longing for. They wanted an everlasting, a perfect king who was always good, who would always win, who would be secure, who would rescue permanently and rescue completely. David was an improvement on Saul, but he had more than his fair share of faults which left people longing for another king, for another descendant of David. And it's no surprise the very first verse of the New Testament reads this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Like as soon as you get the New Testament, here comes this long-awaited son of David. Now we're about to come into the Christmas time, so to speak, The time we celebrate Jesus Christ coming to the world, the true David has entered into the mess of this world and who began his public ministry saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was a king who died. But unlike Saul, he wasn't a king who died because of his failings to honour and obey the Heavenly Father. Part of his obedience and his faithfulness was to die. He came to die to lay down his life, to bear the punishment for sinful mankind on their behalf. Or as we see in Acts chapter 17, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead 
and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This is the perfect son of God. This is the perfect son of David. It was foretold he must suffer and be raised on the third day. This wasn't a failure. This was his mission. This was the way by which he rescued sinful mankind from the consequences of their sin. By his death, he rescues for all time those who turn and trust in him. The enemy is defeated. No longer are we slaves to Satan, to sin or to death. And Jesus rose again in victory. He lives eternally. He reigns eternally. Unlike every other king who has gone before. It's a permanent rescue. Those who come to Jesus, he has lost none. It's a permanent kingdom. Jesus' reign will never be toppled. He has all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's a king who gives. He's a king who gives life, life abundant. Who gives gifts. He gives generously, abundantly to his children. The Philistines who thought Saul's death was a gospel that was so important to proclaim to all of their nation. How much more important that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his death and resurrection, which sets all sinful mankind free from their greatest enemy. Not only is it superior in its importance, but it's what our king calls us to. It is the mission he has given us. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, one of the great things about Christmas is that conversations about Jesus more naturally come up. It may come up from someone actually saying something negative about Christianity or or Jesus or the church. But as those conversations come up, Remember that a person's salvation is not dependent upon your skills or your wittiness. It is dependent upon the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation and the work of God's spirit in the life of that person. So we should rejoice in this time. Pray for opportunities. Pray for the wisdom to actually see them as they present and for the boldness to take them. Next week, we'll begin our Christmas series of A Better Christmas. So on next week, the 13th, the 20th, and on the 25th on Christmas Day, which will be an earlier service, 8 a.m. for the Christmas Day service, is also an opportunity to invite people along to hear about what Christmas is really about, where the, where the sermons that will be preached will be intensely evangelistic in their nature, designed for people who are investigating Jesus, maybe even for the first time. And pray that this would be an opportunity to invite people to experience a better Christmas. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we have a perfect and final King in whom there is no fault, in whom there is no imperfection, no failings, no weakness, 
Lord, we thank you that what we have learned through both Saul and David, we see glimpses of what you had promised for us in Jesus. But we rejoice as the people who live in an age when he has come and we can know him and when he has dealt a death blow to our greatest enemy of sin, death and Satan. Lord, we thank you that all who belong to him, he rescues and he rescues completely. And that he's a king who loves to give to his children. And so, Lord, as we think of of his death, as we're about to share in communion now, uh, Lord, may our hearts overflow with thanksgiving and with celebration for what you have done for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.